we're at a passage in Matthew. If you if you want a Bible, it will be really helpful to follow along because it's a bit. Hmm, it feels like a kind of collection of short stories. Sometimes the Bible kind of does that to you. Um, but for those that don't know, we've been going through the book of Matthew, um, and what that means is sometimes you come up against things that other churches, or in the past even I, would have been tempted to kind of skip over. I don't know if that makes sense. Like you see something and you go, oh Jesus, why did you say that? I'd really wish you hadn't said that, mate, and like skip to the next bit because it's a bit awkward or a bit uh, not really understanding what's going on there. And I think this passage in Matthew 12 is a little bit like that. Um, that on the face of it, it looks a bit haphazard and a bit crazy. But actually, everything that we see particularly in the Gospels, has been written down and recorded in a certain way. So even in Matthew 12 here, it's been recorded and put in this way and put in this place by Matthew on purpose, which means there's kind of purpose to it. There's themes that develop. There's things that go on. And so it's, it's Matthew 12, uh, 38 to about 50, um, but I might cover kind of 33 plus as well. Um, I'm not too sure. We'll see how we go. Um, but the context is, for those that don't know, there's a bunch of Pharisees who are like, I'd say like the religious kind of wannabes. They want to be the hero, they want to be awesome, but they're not. But they think they are, and they've got all these rules and laws. For example, for the day of rest, they had 39 rules on how you're supposed to rest, which is not restful in and of itself, and it just destroyed the whole Sabbath. So Jesus is being a rebel and going through the cornfield, like Theresa May did. Um, and he gets in trouble with the Pharisees um, because they shouldn't be messing around with corn on the Sabbath. And then you get this, oh, this is crazy, right? Jesus heals a man, but it's on the Sabbath, so you're not allowed to do that, apparently. Um, and so the Pharisees basically want to do Jesus in. And you get this kind of bit where it says they were plotting. You kind of imagine them, if they were here, they'd be like in the corner, like scheming. Like, how can we do him in? How can we get him? How can we kill him? And then we read about, well, if that wasn't enough, they go, well, we don't really like this Jesus guy. And he's doing all these miracles. He's doing all this amazing stuff. So he can't be God, so it must be the devil. So they accuse God the Holy Spirit and the works that Jesus is doing, the miracles he's doing, as being the work of the devil. And so that's the context in which we find the verses today. And nestled in that section where you get Jesus kind of uh, being accused of these things and Jesus saying some stuff back, which we looked at last week, is this in verse, verse 30. And I think this helps to kind of understand the verses that follow, if that makes sense. Like I think this verse in verse 30 helps to unlock the rest of the chapter. And it says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather scatters. So Jesus paints this really black and white picture of you're in or you're out. And like, we like to deal, we were talking about this in our connect group, we like to deal as human beings in shades of grey. That we're all on this kind of shades of grey and nothing is black and white. And yet Jesus here is like, you're either with me or you're against me. Which is it? And if I was to ask you that, it's a question to every single individual here. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. And the point he's making is, we talk about sitting on the fence a lot. I've kind of discovered that there isn't a fence. It's like an invisible fence. It's a fence we've made up in our minds to justify our way of living or to justify our lack of decision making. And what we have here and what we'll hope to see is a whole host of things about actually making a choice of yes or no for Jesus. 
And there's some, there's some weird things here, 33 to 37, uh, and onwards, 38 to 42. And I'm just going to read Matthew 12, 38 to 42. And this is about a guy called Jonah, um, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus has to say, bearing in mind the context and all the stuff that I've just explained. Some of the scribes and Pharisees, so the friendly neighborhood people that want to do Jesus in, said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, they can't have just changed like that, can they? Like, they're trying to trip Jesus up again. They're trying to see something else. They want one more miracle, um, even though Jesus has done a whole host of miracles already. So Jesus answered them, and this is nice, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. That's Jesus come back to the Pharisees. He calls them evil and he calls them adulterous. Uh, But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, so that's talking about the queen of Sheba, so Old Testament stuff again, will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, who is reportedly, apart from Jesus, the wisest person ever to live. And he got himself in a bit of hot water, didn't he? If you know the story of Solomon, ended up with a few hundred wives. Wasn't very wise. Never going to go well. Uh, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So uh, these are, and it's important, I don't know what to do with this. I'll put it here, but I'll come back to that. Um, something greater, he says, than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is here. And the Pharisees, even though they'd be well-versed in the story of Jonah, well-versed in the story of Solomon, well-versed in their Old Testament, have, have missed the point, really, when Jesus says there's something greater right in front of you. Jesus has done loads of miracles already. If you just think about some of the things he's done in Matthew so far. He's healed people. That's pretty good. He's raised the dead. As far as miracles go, that's pretty awesome, right? I think. You know, he's, 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 he's loved people. He's blessed people. He's been full of grace. Just moments ago, seemingly, a man with a withered hand has had a complete healing. He's been made completely right in front of their very eyes, and yet they're asking for a sign. And a part of me was feeling, as I was kind of preparing this, that for some of us, we say to God, I'm waiting for a sign. You're waiting for a moment. You're waiting for a lightning bolt moment. But I believe that actually, you'll just wait and wait and wait and wait. That one sign won't be enough, you'll just wait for the next one, or you'll wait for the next one. And actually, it's just a bit of an excuse to not make a decision. It's a, it's a kind of way of sitting on the fence. I'll say, well, I'm just waiting for this lightning bolt moment. It's almost what the Pharisees are saying here. Just give me one more sign, just one more thing, and then I'll love you, Jesus. Then I'll know you're real. But actually, I think it's just a bit of an excuse to disbelieve. Because actually, for the Pharisees there, the evidence is stacked up right in front of them, which is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're looking for a sign, look no further. You've missed it. You're missing it. The story of Jonah, Jesus goes on and says, well, it's like Jonah. Jonah, for those that don't know, is an Old Testament prophet. It's a nice little book in the Old Testament. It's it's a story that we like to tell our kids. Actually, it's a horrific story. If, if If you actually, he's in the 
belly of a fish for three days. I mean, it's not pretty, is it? Like, and it actually says in my translation that when Jonah comes out of the fish, he's vomited onto dry land. Like, it's a bit of a gritty, it's not nice, is it? Like, actually, as a story. And Jonah's this guy who God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh's this place that's just evil. Uh, there's lots of stuff going on. It's not a very nice place. A little bit like the world we live in today, maybe. And so God says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to tell them the good news, that they can turn around, they can put their trust in me and it will be okay. I'll forgive them and we'll have a relationship again and it will go well for Nineveh. So Jonah, the prophet of God, the main man, says, I'm not having any of that. Goes as far away as he can, jumps on a boat and then throws himself into the ocean. I don't know if you see that, actually, when you read the story of Jonah. He's not pushed. He jumps off the boat. He actually basically would rather kill himself. I told you it's a bit of a gritty story. And God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. Without that fish, Jonah's done, isn't he? Jump in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere, you've had it. But God appoints a fish, swallows Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, spits him out, and then Jonah goes, okay, I get the picture. If a fish can swallow me, I'll do it. I can't escape from God. I'll do what God's asked me to do. So Jonah goes, goes to Nineveh, tells them about the good news of God and calls them to repentance. And the city repents and then Jonah gets chipped up about it. Jonah gets annoyed that they've repented. So he's like, they don't deserve this, God. And I could just picture God saying, that is the point, Jonah. Just like you don't. And then Jesus says, the sign, the sign you're looking for is like Jonah. And you're like, hold on, Jesus, what are you talking about? And the point Jesus is making is the story of Jonah is all about rescue. That actually the people of Nineveh are rescued by God. And what we and he, after he has this kind of death and almost resurrection experience that he's in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus says, like Jonah, there was a rescue plan. Here's the rescue plan in front of you. And the sign, the sign you need, the one sign, if you're looking for a sign of, from God, that, is this true? Jesus here says the sign is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That if you're looking for a sign, it's already happened. Some 2,000 years ago. That that's the sign we need to look back to. You want to know that Jesus is the Son of God? Look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. You want to know what new life is? The death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. That's why he's used the story of Jonah. And I, I want to say this. Um, I wouldn't normally, but I just, I just want to get this across. Jesus believes the story of Jonah was a real thing. A real event with a real fish. Not a made-up story. Real. He believes the Queen of Sheba was a real woman. He believes Solomon was a real man. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus believes in the Old Testament. It means that Jesus believes the Old Testament is true. It means that our faith is built on the New Testament and the Old Testament. It means they rise together or they fall together. It's not a pick and mix. And actually by having a pick and mix approach, we're kind of disagreeing with Jesus. And we want to kind of hear what he says. But he thinks Jonah's a real man. He thinks the fish is real. And that's just a sub-point for us here. He's saying, this is a real story just as my death and resurrection is real. 
just as what's going to happen is going to be real. That's verse 40. You see that three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, Jesus will be. It wasn't metaphorical. It was a real thing. And Jesus, when he does that, as we know, takes the hit, doesn't he? That's the, the point of his death. He dies because of our rubbish and our chaos and our stuff. Takes it on the cross that we might go free and that we might have a new life. Galatians 2.20, if I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what happens. Jesus dies, we get a new life. Jesus is raised to new life with the resurrection and we're raised up with him. If we are this morning sat on that metaphorical fence that I don't actually believe exists and you're looking for a sign... Is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Looking for a sign, how do I know God loves me? Well, he died for me, took a hit for me. He was raised to new life for me. Instead of vainly looking for signs that we've already been given, we can put our trust in Jesus. And um, what we do by doing that is we commit. We surrender our life and say, I don't want to be the boss anymore. I want God to be. And I think that's the whole point of what he's doing here is he's drawing out this comparison between those that go all in for God and those that don't. And actually, there's this next section that makes me a bit uncomfortable. There's this next section that a part of me wishes wasn't there. This next section that, as I was genuinely thinking about this yesterday, I was going to kind of make light of and just skim over. And then I almost, this is going to sound really dodgy, but this morning, (laughs) it was almost like God was saying, no, talk about the demons. And I was like, this isn't a good, if I tell people at the start, everybody will leave. So I'll do the whole like, little bit about Jonah first, and then they're trapped. So uh, Matthew 12, 43 to 45, Jesus says some stuff that we can't avoid him saying. This is what it says. And bearing in mind, this is straight after the Jonah stuff. He's not given an introduction. There's no other context. He just says, so imagine the end bit finishes, and he says, you know, the stuff about Jonah, blah, 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 blah. When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person... You're like, hold on, Jesus, where did you get this unclean spirit from? How have you jumped to this? What's going on? It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, I find the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Like, this is one of those mind-blown moments. It's one of those that actually, in order to, like, reconcile what this means, we have to kind of lay a bit of, like, framework. There is a God, therefore there is a devil. There are angels, therefore there are demons. There is a heaven, therefore there is a hell. Not metaphorical, real places, real demons, real angels, real stuff. We're in a spiritual, cosmic battle. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Our, 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 our war is not against humans. It's not beating each other up and going to war and causing more pain and misery. But we have a spiritual adversary who wants to get us. And uh, then Jesus just kind of throws in this demon stuff. <coughs> and without having that in our background, we're like, I don't really know what's going on here. But Jesus talks about this like it's a real thing. And just to clear up, no, I'm not saying you're all demonized this morning. Just before anyone jumps to any conclusions, I'm not saying that. Um, 
I'm not saying that if you're if you're here and you're not following Jesus that you're somehow you've got demons everywhere. It's interesting, like the the phrase demon possession is not something that actually occurs. It's a rendering by some translations, but it's not something you'll find in the language in the original text. It's it's more like under oppression or under attack is the kind of language that you get in the New Testament in particular. Um, and it's something actually when you read the New Testament, a lot is talked about it. It happens a lot. And we can kind of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, this happened or that happened. But it's all there in front of us. People being set free. People that are under the influence of something. Um, the other question that might be in the back of our mind is, well, if I'm a Christian, can I be demonized, if you like? Um, hard to kind of draw a conclusion on that. My conclusion is that, of course, we can be attacked. And that we can do ourselves no favors towards these things. Um, hopefully I'll explain that a little bit as we go. Um, but Jesus here, I think, has this passage about the demons straight after some stuff about fruit and trees and straight after the stuff about Jonah and straight before God's family on purpose. Because he's saying, if you're going to follow me, don't do it half-heartedly. Because if you do it half-heartedly or you don't do it at all, this is what it's like. That's his point. This demon stuff is real. This is what it will be like. Sin is real. The enemy is real. His work is painful. We only have to be in the world, don't we? We only have to switch on the news and it breaks your heart to see the pain, the misery, the hurt. And I'll try and explain this passage as best as I can because I appreciate it's not easy and it's a bit tricksy. Uh, and I find it a bit tricky as well, to be quite honest with you, and a little uncomfortable. But Jesus here, to try and put it in a way we can understand it, at least a way I can understand it, is Jesus says our lives are like a house. Are like our home. So what I want you to do is I want to picture yourself in your home. You're in your house, and that's your life. That's where you are. All your stuff are part of your body and how you're functioning and how you're working. And he says, the enemy wants to move into your house, wants to take up residence with you in your house. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're not for me, you're against me, and he wants to move in. And you can try and kick him out, and you may succeed. But maybe he'll just come back. And in order to kick him out effectively, we've got to have the strength of another. You see, we're created. This is another point we need to know. We are created to worship God. We're created to glorify God, and we are built with a soul. We're different to animals. Animals are great. I love animals. Um, I like going to the farm, like going to the zoo, I enjoy eating them, like, not the zoo animals, obviously, but like, animals are great, all shapes and sizes, brilliant, everyone has a favorite animal, and they love them, and mine's the panda, because they're really cool, just so you know, my least favorite animal, a moth, <laughs> if that even qualifies. Um, but we're created for worship. We're created to relate to God and connect to God. And we're given a soul. 
And this soul is something that can be filled up with stuff. It's our way of connecting to God. And when we put our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters and fills that gap, fills that God-shaped hole so that we connect with God and we know we're the children of God and we walk with God and we enjoy God and it's brilliant. But because of stuff, because of sin, because of our decisions and all of us make it because of my decisions, that kind of gets grieved and, and the chaos of stuff enters my heart instead. And sometimes it gets filled with other stuff and sometimes we read according to the Bible the enemy takes up residence instead. Not the God, the Holy Spirit, but the enemy. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you're born again, you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, I don't believe you can be controlled by the enemy. Because instead, you're controlled by the Spirit of God. That you're a servant of the King. He has no power, the enemy. He's been disarmed. But... We can be influenced by the enemy, can't we? And this is where I want to get to this story about us having a house. We're in a battle. Imagine you've got your home, you're living in your home, your home is your life, but we're in a battle. There's a war outside. Like the spiritual war we're in now, we might not see it, but there's a war outside. And in that, there's friendly combatants and there's enemy combatants. And they're waging a war. And you're in your home, but you've got your windows wide open. Your front door is open. You've got a disabled ramp for access for all people. Just to say, that's what my house is like, in case anybody's wondering, um, so that I can get up and down with my knees. But basically, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of war, you've left your home open, your life open. It's easy entry. And one day, an enemy combatant comes in, and he sits on your sofa, and he watches friends with you, and he's eating your nachos, and he's enjoying your facilities. <laughs> and at first, it's all right. It's just enjoyable. But after a while, it starts to be damaging. It starts to destroy our life. It starts to bring us pain. It starts to bring us hurt. Maybe it brings addiction. Maybe it brings abuse. Maybe it's just this difficult situation where anger rises up. Hatred rises up, and the grace of God and the peace of Christ seems so far away. And you wonder, how did I get here? And yet our windows were open, our doors were locked, uh, unlocked. And somehow, somehow in our own strength, we managed to kick the soldier out. Have it, out you go. And he disappears, and it's beautiful. And instead, you know, you're going around, you're hoovering up, you're cleaning the dishes, you're making it more beautiful than before, a new lick of paint on the walls. I'm a new me, it's great, I'm free. The enemy combatant is gone. But I still leave my windows open. I still leave my door unlocked. And what Jesus says here is the enemy combatant, he's been cast out, he's disappeared. And then he thinks, Oh, I did enjoy that house. I didn't enjoy it when I was there. But I got kicked out. I have a plan. I will get seven of my friends and we will go back together and we will conquer all. And that's what Jesus says happens. They come back and they find it clean and fresh and happy. But he's brought his cronies with him this time because he knows he's going to get kicked out if he's by himself. So he comes back stronger and Jesus says, it will be worse for you than it was before. 
What is going on? You know what I think Jesus is saying here? Is he's saying when it comes to the things of faith and it comes to following Jesus, we have to be decisive. Honestly, that's what I believe that this is about, that we have to be decisive. That we have to say, I am in. Because if we say we're kind of in or out, shake it all about, we're kind of leaving our windows open. <laughs> we're kind of leaving our front door unlocked. We're kind of inviting trouble. And actually, when trouble arises, it's harder and harder and harder. And when the story goes here that this... Uh, demon, if you like, soldier, whatever you want to say, is kicked out of the house that is our life. If something else doesn't come in, it's just coming back again. That's why I truly believe that ultimately to be set free from things like, uh, you see it time and again, that people that are ultimately set free once and for all from addictions that have ruined their life is when they meet Jesus Christ is when they invite Jesus Christ into their life. It makes the difference. Sure, there are other things that help, but ultimately, eternally, what makes the change? What fills that void? What fills that gap? Life with Christ. That's why, unapologetically, we want to be kind of about the gospel. We want to be about the Jesus, Jesus relentlessly. We don't want to stop on that. I want to love people, but I want to tell them about Jesus too. I want them to know the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And for many of us, myself included, this might be our journey. That this is why it's sometimes quite hard to hear. That actually in our hearts, there are things that there's darkness. That there's things that eat away at us. There's things that we do in secret that we know we shouldn't do before God, but we do anyway. Or there's things we do publicly that we know we shouldn't be doing, but we do them anyway. Whether that's addiction, sex, drink, sin, pride. The list is endless. There's so much stuff we can fill our life with. And we try and shake it off. We try and do it in our own strength, but we don't defeat it. If I was given a book that said 20 ways to evict a soldier from my life or a soldier from my house, that's all well and good, but it doesn't kick him out the door. It might give me some constructs to help understand why the soldier's there and what the soldier's doing, but it doesn't bring effective action. It's what God does, brings effective action. You see, I, I truly believe that to defeat the stuff in our life, the stuff that causes us hurt and pain, it's not just a case of saying, oh, stop doing that. I, I genuinely think we have to love something more. You know, if we love doing something but we know it's wrong, I genuinely believe we have to love Jesus more. That we'd love kingdom stuff more than that in order to beat it. That there's something greater. Something more powerful. Something that actually brings us life. Something that blesses our hearts. Because I think for many of us, actually, we're stuck in this place of, well, well, defeat really. We, we keep tripping up. We keep messing up to the same old thing. We don't seem to make any progress. We hit the first hurdle time and again. We feel broken. We feel done. And actually, that's what Satan wants for us. But Carl says quite a lot. He does his little bull illustration, which I won't try and steal. 
But that whole idea that we're just wallowing, that our eyes to the ground, that we're done. That our eyes aren't on Christ, aren't full of hope, aren't full of expectation as to the things that God has for us. Our sin defeats us. And we look in all the wrong places to be set free. And maybe we go at things half-heartedly and we just go through this cycle. And it never gets broken. Because something greater doesn't enter in. Because we don't stop and say something greater needs to come into our heart and our life. Scary stuff, I think. But the good news is that the gospel is decisive. If we're decisive when we say yes to Jesus, it's decisive. It may not change everything instantly. But it changes our relationship with God instantly. Instantly we're made right. Instantly we have new life that we pass from darkness into light. I talk about this quite a lot, but um, it's almost like every single one of us needs that line in the sand moment. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like This is where I am now. This is what I'm struggling with. This is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling afflicted. I'm feeling like I've left my door and my windows open. I need a line in the sand moment. I need something to change in order to break free from the stuff that afflicts me and causes me pain and hurt and damages my soul. And that line in the sand moment is faith in Jesus. That line in the sand moment is God the Holy Spirit coming into our life. And I think the verses that surround this kind of passage on the demons in Matthew 12 help us to understand how we combat it, how we fight back, if you like. And genuinely, I think the number one way that we can actually make sure that we keep on the narrow path, we keep following Jesus, that we give an elbow to Satan and we say, no room here, mate, is going all in for Jesus. If we do it half-heartedly, just it just doesn't sit right it doesn't sit right with what's going on here we've either say yes or no we can't say maybe in the grand scheme of things we can say maybe in our shades of gray and on a journey and that's okay but when push comes to shove there is no maybe we all make a choice whether we're going to invite the spirit in or not and maybe a question for us to all ask this morning is what windows have i left open What in my life is the door unlocked on? What do I need to lock up here? What do I need to see changing? What do I keep going back to? Why why is there no change in this thing? I believe this morning, just as there was amazing things happening in a field near Swindon where people are being transformed, where there's a lady who's an atheist, says, no, I'm going to follow Jesus, that her life will be transformed. That actually, we don't have, it doesn't have to always be like this for us. We don't always have to wrestle with the darkness. We can find out what windows we've left open and close them up. Not giving a foothold. Don't give Satan a foothold. And I want you to think about verses 33 to 38 of Matthew 12. I've not really mentioned them so much. But they're interesting when it says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. That's nice. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. That's the bit there. What we do externally 
how we are externally, if we're bitter, if we're angry, if we're resentful, if we're jealous, if we're full of pride, if we're nasty with our language, all sorts of things, you name it. And the flip side is if we're full of grace, if we're full of truth, if we're full of hope, if we're full of joy, it's a reflection of what's going on in our heart, Jesus says. What comes out of here is a reflection of what goes on in here. Our character is a reflection of what goes on in here. And you know what? We get that wrong. I get that wrong all the time. That my character is flawed because in here is flawed. In here I've got it wrong. Before, out here. Out here always comes second to something that's gone wrong in my heart. And our character is an indication of where our heart is at. Our character can tell us what windows we've left open. If we're getting angry all the time, that is just an external of something that's gone on in here, that we're upset about something somewhere that we've let a foothold in. And I came across this lovely thing. It was lovely. It was on uh, social media, which is really surprising. Um, But it was really nice, and it said this. It said something like this anyway. That God loves our giftings and he loves our talents because he loves us. But he loves godly character more because we're more like his son. The more we can be like Jesus, the more we're like Jesus in here. It's not an external show. It's not like a puppet. (laughs) It's a real thing. The more externally in our character, the more kind we are, the more generous we are. The more we give our time, the more gracious we are, the more gentle we are, the more faithful we are, the more loving, the more peaceful is a reflection of what goes on in here. And it's something for us to pursue. And to do that, it's that daily coming back to God. You know, between you, me, YouTube, the world, repentance is something I do every single day. Every single day, I'm like, God, I've got it wrong again. God, forgive me. Not that I'm not assured that I'm saved. It's not that. I just want to be right with God. I just want to pursue him with all that I am. And sometimes I get that wrong. And it's a daily thing to turn around and put our trust in him. I think that's the biggest way we give the elbow to the enemy. Is we keep coming back to Jesus. Every single day. That is the biggest way we will keep, we will grow in our character and we will be more like Christ as if every single day we turn back to him. Psalm 139, I seem to be saying this every single week. Beautiful psalm. You're created, you're loved, you're precious. From before you were born, God knew everything about you. You're amazing. God loves you. Watch your heart. End of Psalm 139. God, see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. After this amazing passage about not the east, not the west, not the height, not the depth, nothing. God loves you so much. Watch your heart. Keep coming back to him. Keep asking for forgiveness. Keep setting yourself right. Don't accept sinfulness. Don't say, oh, it's okay, it's only this. The moment we do that, we start drifting off the narrow path. And before we know it, we end up all the way over here and we're thinking, how did I get here? I didn't set out to be over here. I was trying to follow God. I was trying to follow him well. But somehow 
I've moved and I've drifted. There's daily repentance. It's our prayer. It's our suiting up. Ephesians 6 is there. Famous passages. But it's there in order to tool us up in order to be dealing with this. The armor of God, yes, it's kind of a picture. But it's, it's something real. The helmet of salvation. Remind yourself that you're a son or a daughter of the King of Kings who loves you. Don't forget that. Have that shield of faith. Have the feet fitted with the good news, the peace of the good news of Jesus. Another thing I think that's helpful to keep us kind of on the straight and narrow, to keep us following God well, is to not miss the sign. If, you, if you're kind of on that fence, if you like, that I don't believe exists, don't miss the sign. And finally, I want to say this because it's in the passage. Right at the end, after the stuff about demons, he jumps to family. He jumps to like the complete opposite. Here's this terrible situation. Here's what a, a great thing looks like. And the people are asking Jesus, your family are here to see you, Jesus. And he's like, well, who are they? It's not that he's, he's forgotten. It's not that he doesn't know what his own mother looks like anymore. But he says something else. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's a call to community. It's a call to say, I'll try my best to give Satan the elbow. I need the empowering of the Holy Spirit, but I also need your help. That's the truth. I need your help to follow Jesus well. And you need my help to follow Jesus well. Do we believe that? I think we need each other massively and in these days especially we need each other we need church we need family and whoever does the will of God who will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother and you know what that says to you and it says to me no matter how great the darkness is it's not too late no matter what you've done in the past no matter what you're doing in the present you know maybe when I said some of that stuff you were feeling like oh I feel stabbed in the heart you said something and that applies to me it's not too late Whatever the oppression, whatever the addiction, whatever the apathy. I'm going to include apathy in there. I think that's one of the biggest things we have in, in the UK. Apathy towards the fingers of God. Oh, I don't know. It'd be all right. Can we be like that about God? I don't think so. I don't think we can afford to be like that about God. And yet, he says, whoever. There's a massive word there. That's a great word in the Bible when you see it. Whoever. That means me, that means you, that means your neighbor. That means people that are currently fighting in Syria for IS. You know that, right? Whoever, anybody, everybody who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus is brought into this liberating relationship with God into the very thing we were created for. So I think this whole passage and the challenge that I, I want us to go away with is we have a choice. Do we want to live like that, leaving the windows open for the enemy to take root in our heart, or do we want to live a better way? Do we want the Spirit of God to rule and reign in our heart? Because I think we have a choice with the way that we do things and the way that we operate and whether we keep coming back to Jesus or not. And my kind of, I want to kind of, beg you almost is please don't leave today saying oh it doesn't matter or please don't leave today with darkness and stuff clouding our hearts and say oh, I'll deal with it one day please don't do that 
Be decisive. Because God wants us to be decisive. Galatians 2.20. This is pretty decisive. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why deal with the stuff in our heart? Because God loves you. That's why. Why, why not, you know, why change? Why be different? Why pursue holiness? Because God loves you. Because Jesus got a better way for you. Because life will be better. I tell you, your home will be better if there's not an enemy combatant eating your Doritos and sitting on your couch and drinking your cherry coke. And even better if he doesn't bring his mates. Because then you'll have nothing left. But instead, invite Jesus into your home. Make him the king of your life. And it deals with all that other stuff.